If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read through chapter 2, verse 5. And um, I, uh, Chris Govero, longtime elder at uh, Providence Presbyterian Church in Clinton, Mississippi, once told me, never apologize for reading a long passage of Scripture. So, not going to do that. But uh, I am warning you, in a sense, preparing you. So uh, as we look at that together in just a moment, you might say, isn't this some, of, some of this repetitive? And indeed it is. I encourage you not to look at the repetition. I encourage you to look at the parts that aren't repetitive, the parts where the pattern breaks. Um, with that, Judges 1.1 to 2.5, it's page 200 and 201. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, red ones are hymnals, black ones are pew Bibles. It's not printed in the bulletin because it's so long and uh, this week, but <clears throat> please follow along. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adoni Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arid. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon and his brother. And they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. 
So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin and Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Oxib or of Helba or of Afik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Herez in Aijalon and in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Salah, and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask now his blessing as we look at his word and consider it together. Let us pray. <clears throat> oh God, our God, we come to you as, a, as those in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We, we long for you, we long for your word, we long for your presence more than life, and so give it to us now, speak to us, for your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. What are you going to preach after Ephesians? It was a reasonable question, young man asked me last week, and first off, I was very glad, especially given his age, that he's interested in what, was, what I was going to preach. Second, I said, judges, do you know much about judges? No? Well, I said, if you read the last verse of the last chapter 
of the book of Judges, you'll have a great summary of the entire book. And since I don't want any of you to be left out in that, let's read it now. Judges 21, 25 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is not a compliment. This is saying Israel was a mess. God's people were a mess. They did whatever they wanted. And if you read the two-part conclusion of Judges, that's chapters 17 through 21, long conclusion, that will make a ton of sense. But we're in the beginning, aren't we? The, the two-part intro, yes, double intro, double conclusion to the book of Judges. But that verse will still help us wade through the beginning. Now, before we dive in, this is in the uh, bulletin, an outline for you for the entire book to orient us, slightly simplified, chapters one through three, the failure of a second generation, chapters three through 16, the salvation of a long-suffering God, and then chapters 17 through 21 is the confusion of a depraved people. That comes from Ralph Davis, few things about him. Number one, Ralph Davis's commentaries help me understand the Old Testament. My, my best friend reads them at breakfast uh, for her morning devotions. Uh, number two, I now read his commentaries last during sermon prep because if I don't, I'm tempted to plagiarize him. But again, chapters one through three shows us the failure of a second generation. We'll see that this week and next week. But today we see this picture emerge. Despite past success or current failure, the most important decision for God's people is to obey his word and repent today. It's to obey and repent today. That unfolds in four scenes. First, we see this. We see a just war, a just war. First two verses as well as the entire passage we read. Let's read those two verses again. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. This is a war story, a continuation of the conquest of the promised land begun in the book of Joshua. Go up is code for go up in battle, fight. And since every man did what was right in his own eyes, you may think this is just evidence of their depravity. Not so. God sent Israel into the promised land to fulfill a promise to them and to use them as agents of God's justice to punish the wicked Canaanites. Does that mean Israel was purely righteous in all they did? They never did anything wrong. Does that mean that I can declare holy war on whoever I want, whenever I want? No, sir. Isn't this, you might ask, an ancient example of ethnic cleansing? Also, no. This was not carried out along ethnic lines. It was along religious lines. You might notice if you look at Joshua, Rahab, a prostitute and a Gentile, was spared in Joshua 2 in part because she pledged her faith in the God of Israel. Isn't all this still primitive, brutal, you want to think of it that way, so be it. But I would say no, because the Canaanites were not a good people. They were not innocent. They, they, they weren't even neutral. If you look at Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 and 10, it says, When you come into the land 
that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer. Verse 12, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. But wouldn't all of that have just made Israel well up in pride, a bunch of prideful, arrogant people who were entitled not if they listened to their God? Deuteronomy 9, a few chapters back, chapter 9, verse 4, God says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. It's not about you. But this was a just war, a righteous war that Israel was called to fight. It doesn't mean anything, everything they ever did was automatically just, but the war itself was just. This war is not automatically wrong. I hope no one hears me say in all that that we should glory in war, glory in violence for the sake of violence. But on the other hand, it would be good for Christians, for us, to study just war theory, starting with St. Augustine in the 4th century, two notable principles about that theory, that war must be lawfully declared by a lawful authority, that war is a last resort when other options are exhausted. Now, for more on that, I asked one of my friends who knows more about this than me. He recommended two books. One, The Just War Tradition by Corey and Charles, and then secondly, Between Pacifism and Jihad by J. Daryl Charles. Christians, as citizens of this country, any country, should know some wars are more unjust than others. In Christians who are ultimately citizens of heaven, as Philippians 3.20 says, who await their Savior from heaven, should all remember that our battle, what did we say last week? What did we see last week? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, the principalities, the authorities. We, we are not aware, unaware of Satan's schemes, are we? And so we pray, your kingdom come, O Lord. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen. God ordained this fight, this war, this conquest. But God has not given me the right to pick every fight I might want. And further, Israel, yes, at this time had an earthly enemy, but their biggest enemy as we'll see, was internal. The enemy of their own fallen nature, something that should certainly be familiar for us. And so after a just war, we also see this. We see a sufficient grace in chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, a sufficient grace. Now, once we get past the moral complexity of Israel's calling, you should also 
realize the difficulty of that calling. If you look, for example, at Joshua 1 and 23, that's the book that comes right before this. It's the same thing. It's leading into all this. You'll see Israel was called to be brave. They were called to never retreat. They were also called to never plunder or enslave the Canaanites. Now, the first one of those requires extreme courage. The second one requires extreme restraint and resolve. You see, it'd be easier to plunder them, to take all their stuff, or to enslave the Canaanites. Yeah, it's lucrative. It, it you know, is uh, economically viable to do that, but God didn't want that because he didn't want Israel to, to keep them around, to keep their false gods around. He didn't want Israel to become ensnared by Canaan's idols, their false worship. And you think if your calling involves this much difficulty, then you need a sufficient grace to get through the challenges, don't you? A grace that's made perfect in our weakness, a grace that depends on God, seeks God, trusts God for direction. And it's what you see starting in verse 1. Israel inquires of God. It's likely through the priesthood, through the official Urim and Thummim, which we, we don't have today. God calls Judah to take the lead. And Judah, one of the mighty tribes, asked Simeon, one of the weaker, smaller tribes, to come with him. It's Christian unity and solidarity leading to success starting in verse 4. You might say sufficient grace prevails. And then verses 5 through 7, you see this story about Adoni Bezek. Even an unrepentant Gentile king is acknowledging God's justice at work. He was cruel and unjust to others, and now it's his turn. Try taking notes the rest of this sermon with no thumbs or big toes. You'll get an idea why this was unjust, cruel, humiliating. You see that. Even he acknowledges God's justice. Next, story moves on. Verse 8, Judah conquers Jerusalem. It wasn't always under Israelite control. Verse 9, Judah turns south. More victory follows in verses 9 through 11. More sufficient grace for the grueling battles, the difficulties ahead. Then there's this story about Othniel and Aksa in verses 11 through 16. Uh, yes, Aksa is the prize for a victorious warrior. This, this wasn't uncommon then. Doesn't mean we should imitate it now. Interestingly, she doesn't seem upset. Rather, she's a positive female character. Those are somewhat rare in judges. She shows initiative. She asks for springs of water for this newly acquired land for her family, bringing additional blessing to her family and future generations. In a time when physical land was an economic necessity as well as a sign of God's blessing. And again, while I've said that this section shows us sufficient grace, these verses, the springs of water, they, they seem to be more than sufficient, don't they? In a way that, that old faithful is more than just faithful. Verse 17 moves on, shows us another victory for Judah and Simeon, another example of his sufficient grace, which enabled them to do the difficult task that was before them. It says they devote Zephath to destruction. They rename it Horma. Your footnote probably tells you that means either utter destruction or devoted to destruction. Does all that make us a bit queasy this morning? Then remember why God has called them to such difficult, such drastic action. 
You can peek ahead to Judges 2.2. It explains it very easily. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. Break down their altars. Break down the false worship that was going on there. Remember, the Canaanites were sacrificing their own children. Other unspeakable, abominable things in the name of worship. And God didn't want Israel to be tempted to do the same, so he gave them sufficient grace to remove the temptation altogether. Verse 19 says God was with Judah. That's why they racked up these victories. Verse 18 and all the verses before. Now, in real time, those victories weren't as fast as they might read in these, these few verses, right? It wasn't fast, but through it all, God was faithful. He gave them sufficient grace for what he called them to do. What began in the book of Joshua, he continued to do. He did what he promised in Joshua 23, 5. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. He gave them sufficient grace. He did what he promised. And before I move on, I must say that God has given all of us sufficient grace as well, has he not? Not for this type of challenge, but for whatever challenge might face us. You might know that phrase. You might know this verse. It's familiar to, to me, to many of us. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, where Paul says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. But if you read the Second half of that verse lately, the verse that follows, he goes on to say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He boasted about weakness, boasted about it. He was content with insults and those other things because it showed God's strength. This is not simply acknowledging, hey, I'm not perfect. I know I can do better. No, this is saying without Christ, I can do nothing. It's a sufficient grace. Yes, a grace that, that gets you through. We don't need to minimize that, but it's also, it's also essential grace, isn't it? The kind of grace you need every day of your life whether you're driving out Canaanites or just praying for daily bread. And if you let go of this essential lifeline that is sufficient grace, then disaster can strike. Oh, maybe not all at once. Maybe nobody will notice it first. But eventually you may turn around and your home might look more like Canaan and less like the promised land. That's what we begin to see next. Our third point this morning, a theological map. A theological map, you see it in verses 18 through 36, as well as the whole chapter, really. Now, I am the proud owner of an atlas. You know what atlases are? Some of the kids are like, what, what, is that a, not like a famous novel or something? <clears throat> atlas, it's a map of the United States in a, in a thing. My family makes fun of me for it because they remind me I have a phone that has GPS on it. See, apparently some people think maps are boring, useless, pointless, something like that. But I will have my vengeance during the geography category of trivial pursuit. <laughs> Even though I sadly failed at the geography category on Jeopardy a few nights ago. But nonetheless, Judges 1, 
It's a sort of verbal map of Israel's conquest, you see? But don't, don't dare say this is boring, even if it is slightly repetitive at times. You see, it's really more of a theological map, a map that tells you something about God, theology, study of God, and his people. A map that hints that something went wrong. Like what? Like God's promises? Or maybe God's people? The first hint comes in verse 19, which we already skimmed over. Verse 19, the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. The first lack of success we see, right? Was this a matter, as it says here, of could not or would not? Because, you know, verse 20 mentions, the very next verse, Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak, who, by the way, were giants, according to Numbers 13, 33. Could not or would not? What's the map telling us? What's it hinting at? The next hint, the next step in the downward spiral comes in verse 21. The tribe of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites of Jerusalem. And by the way, that's not contradicting verse 8, which also talks about Jerusalem. See, Joshua, Judges, they both use different words for conquering, capturing, and then driving out, taking full possession. But the point is that Judah's first negative there in verse 19 gets worse as we turn to Benjamin and the other tribes. Benjamin, it says, did not drive them out and quote, the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin to this day, whenever the book was written. The Canaanites and their abominable practices are now permitted among the people of Israel, the people of God. That might be the same point in verses 22 to 26, this story, the, though the Lord was with Israel, they permitted this man to escape, despite no Rahab-like confession of faith in the God of Israel. Is this kindness or is this unfaithfulness? What's the map telling us? And regardless, Manasseh's unfaithfulness is certainly worse. You see that in verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. What did you do, Manasseh? Verse 28 says, they eventually became strong. But they still didn't complete the job. They simply enslaved the Canaanites. Not supposed to do that. Probably because it was financially expedient, though morally disobedient. Was God's grace insufficient? Or were God's people disobedient? What's the map telling us? The fourth hint, not very subtle. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Akzib or of Helba or of Afik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Canaanites living among Israel was bad enough. Now Asher, which means blessed or happy, oh, they should be unhappy because the Israelites are living among the Canaanites. Worse, it's going downhill indeed. Same thing happens for Naphtali in verse 33. And then the fifth hint, the fifth stage of decline is the Danites, the tribe of Dan. Verse 34, they get pushed back. 
Oh, sure, they have more success, some success in verse 35, verse 36, enslaving the Amorites, but it's not what God wanted. It's not full success. It's not full obedience. Again, is it an issue of could not or would not? God was with them. God made promises. They were strong enough to enslave the Canaanites on many occasions, but the theological map says they were, quote, clearly successful, though certainly disobedient, as one person says. They look mostly successful, if you read it quick enough. They look mostly faithful. You know, if you only want to hear the applause of men, that's, that's pretty good. But if we live and breathe for an audience of one, we'll be faithful in the little things as well, won't we? Dying more and more unto sin, living more and more unto righteousness, knowing that a conscience that becomes dull to small sins eventually becomes numb to bigger sins as well. And if that can happen to the original residents of the promised land, and it did, as we already see, as we'll see more next week, then why can't it happen to God's people today? This theological map with its outward success, its disturbing disobedience, should be a warning, should be a wake-up call for us so that we can avoid an unpleasant visit from the angel of the Lord. That's what what we see next, after a theological map, we see, fourthly, a godly grief. A godly grief in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. There's a question mark there. So, you know, a godly grief? Was it a godly grief? That's the idea here, is it? Well, you see, one problem is that Israel wasn't grieved over their sin early enough, quick enough. So God had to intervene, didn't he? Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Gilgal, meaning roll away, was the place where God rolled away the reproach, the shame of Israel and made a covenant with them. It's in Joshua 5. So the angel apparently goes up from there, meets them at Bochim, maybe near Bethel, something. And there, the angel of the Lord, that often means a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord himself. He reminds Israel of his more than sufficient grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. It says he covenanted with them, made a covenant, a promise with them, commanding them not to covenant with the false gods, to destroy them instead. But that didn't happen. What does he say in verse 2? You have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Don't be confused by Israel's PR campaign in chapter 1. Ah, we couldn't do it. The armies were too strong. Iron chariots, it was too hard. God says that wasn't the issue. The issue was disobedience. And in verse 3, Israel's heavenly father lets them learn from the natural consequences of their actions. They'll ensnare you. There'll be a thorn in your sides. We'll talk more about that next week. Don't worry. Unpack that then. Instead, worry about the reaction of God's people. 
And ask yourself if you would react this way as well. Verses four and five. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Bochim means weepers. That's what the footnote most of our Bibles says, right? Now, nothing inherently wrong with tears. Same goes with tears in religion. I once heard D.A. Carson tell a story. Now, my memory's a bit sketchy, but I think it was about the late Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, talking to one of his friends, uh, probably the, the Bonar brothers, uh, and uh, there were two preachers talking on a Monday. One of them said to the other, what did you preach on yesterday? Hell. And did God give you the grace to preach it with tears? Tears are not always a problem. Tears are not the problem here. The problem is we don't see much besides tears. There's a sacrifice, but do things get better in the rest of chapter 2? Spoiler, they do not. There's grief, but there's not much more. See an example of this in the New Testament as well. Paul once grieved the church of Corinth. He made him upset. Maybe even brought him to tears with a similar prophetic rebuke. And Paul was, was glad. Not, not for the grief itself, for the possible tears that he caused, but because of what followed the tears. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 9, it says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It's a grief that leads to death and a grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. How can I tell them apart? It's a good question. If you've ever been around children, yours or someone else's, you know that there are different responses to discipline, right? <laughs> when they get caught, taking the cookie, hitting their sibling, whatever, how do they respond? Does it seem like they hate the consequences of their sin? Or does it seem like they hate the sin itself? Reminder, Christian maturity is learning to hate your sin without hating yourself. Thank you, Rosaria. I've used that quote a lot lately. Repentance, the fruit of godly grief. That is when we not only hate our sin because of its filthy and filthiness and odiousness, as the Westminster Confession says, but we also grasp the beauty of Christ, his forgiveness, his mercy, his delightful law that leads to life. True repentance, true godly grief. It may or may not include tears, but it will always include more than tears. Godly grief will be less about you and more about God, right? His honor, his glory, his undeserved goodness and grace to a wretch like me. Judges is a messy book for messy people like you and me. Why judges after Ephesians? It's a bit of a tonal shift, is it not? See, Ephesians showed us the church glorious, the glorious ideal that we want to strive for. 
And Judges shows us the messy reality of God's people. It shows us how much we need a God who gives not only sufficient grace, but supernatural and overflowing grace. As we move forward, don't forget all the glorious ideals we saw in Ephesians. Don't forget the glorious God of overflowing grace, gushing grace from the early chapters of Ephesians. But the more we see in Judges, the more blood, the more idolatry, the more moral confusion, the more we will long for a long-suffering God who oozes out of every page of this book and all of the scripture. Despite our past success, present failure, the most important thing for us is to return to our God in obedience and repentance today. Continued obedience or renewed obedience, whatever it might be, because repentance is turning from sin and turning to God. As Isaiah reminds us, chapter 30, verse 15, in repentance and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Maybe your sin is big, gigantic, as we'll see next week. Maybe it's seemingly small, seemingly respectable, seemingly undetected by those around you. But as we'll see next week, small sins grow big quickly unless we kill it by God's grace. And whether it's big or small, We serve a God who says, I will never break my covenant with you, even if that means sending his son to suffer in our place. Let us pray. Oh God of every grace, we come before you and we ask that you would show us your grace right now. Give us grace to see our sin, but give us grace to see our Savior who suffered for us, who's given us a grace that is greater than all our sin. So be with us now. Help us see our need of you. Help us hold on tight to you. And give us grace for whatever challenge awaits us today. We pray it in, God, in, in, in the name of God's Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.